My name is Joanna Beeler, and I'll just give you a little background about myself. I was born in Indiana, but raised in Arizona. I was there was a snowstorm going on, and uh, when I was born, and Arizona's weather's totally different. Prepared uh, prepared me for. Um, uh, missionary service in Pakistan. I'd rather be hot than cold any day. <laughs> I've been uh, served with a World Venture, a church planting mission. We also have medical work in uh, the country of Pakistan since 1990. I did a couple years short term uh, from 1983 to 1985. I just would like to kind of get... Uh, an idea of who's all here. How many nursing students do we have? Okay, great. Um, medical students? All right. Doctors? Nurses? Nurse practitioners? Okay, great. Um, nurse midwife? Great. Welcome. Um, did any of you uh, download the handout that I put on? Up, uploaded? Okay, that's fine because what I'm presenting today is different than what I uploaded. But there's a lot of um, information uh, uh, on, the, on the handout if you can get up there and download it. Uh, we're today we're going to talk about culturally competent care of, um, for obstetrical patients in Asia. And particularly I'm going to focus on Pakistan because that is my um, expertise. The religion of Islam affects every area of a, of a Muslim woman's life, her family and social relationships, uh, morality, um, health, economics, and politics. Becoming a woman in uh, Pakistan or in the Muslim world is a time of celebration when their first menses comes. Um, it's a symbol of their womanhood, but it's also a time, uh, a period of spiritual uncleanliness. Every time they're their menses comes, they are unable to pray, do their ritual prayers. Muslims will pray five times a day, and um, if she's having an ab uh, her menses or an abnormal discharge, then she is unable to take, place, uh, take part in those ritual prayers, and therefore unable to earn points to make herself acceptable to uh, Allah. They're also not allowed to participate in any Hajj activities that take place if they go on the pilgrimage to Mecca. And that is something that every good Muslim, um, to um, get points to be, uh, to be acceptable to Allah, must do. Um, sexual intercourse is forbidden during the menses or any after postpart, um, after the birth of a baby. They're supposed to wait for 40 days. Uh, six weeks until uh, all the discharge and the bleeding stops. But that does not always happen. I have um, discovered when talking to women who have come back for their postpartum follow-up. Uh, they don't always wait for uh, that period of time. And some of them will have intercourse while they're on their menses. So, so it's not uh, clear-cut. Cut it's not cut and dry. Uh, regarding abnormal vaginal discharge, um, Many of them think that any discharge that they're having is abnormal. So it's a good opportunity to do some education that uh, what you're having now is normal. And uh, then they have to decide whether they're going to uh, be able to pray or not. I had a conversation once uh, with uh, a woman, Pakistani. She was not a Muslim, but she lives in that culture. 
And she needed a, she was advised to have a hysterectomy. And she said, no, if I have a hysterectomy, then I'm no longer a woman. And that's how they feel about their menses coming every month. It's very important. Um, uh, an Islamic Muslim, uh, an Islamic woman's worth is based upon her ability to bear children, and especially sons. If she cannot have children, um, that is a dishonor and a shame and a curse for her. Um, one of the first questions I get as uh, a woman in Pakistan uh, is, are you married? Being married is very important in that society. And if, if uh, you happen to be married, then the second question will be, how many children do you have? How many sons do you have? As I was saying, if infertility is a curse that brings shame to a Muslim woman, uh, one of the reasons for a, a man to take, on, to take a second wife is uh, the first wife can't have children, or she may not have sons. She may have daughters, but she may not have sons, and he feels that taking a second wife is going to give him those sons. So this is an opportunity to, for education, not only to educate the, the woman who you are seeing as an infertility patient, but also to educate her, her mother-in-law. Because the mother-in-law um, has a lot of influence in the family. And she, um, if you might educate the woman, but she, what she says is not going to bear weight in the family. They might not believe what she said. And um, so they feel that uh, if it's the woman who decides that what the sex of the baby, and that just, there just needs to be some education. Now, if I was a male practitioner, I well, for one thing, uh, in, in uh, Muslims throughout the world, women would prefer to be treated by um, mm-hmm. women would prefer to be treated by female <coughs> practitioners. And the same for male. I do not have um, much contact with the husbands of, uh, of our patients. But if you, if you were a male practitioner, if we had a male doctor in our hospital, and we have had in the past where they have seen the, the uh, husbands of these women, then he would talk to them about, you know, it's you who makes the decision your sperm makes a decision on whether this baby is going to be a boy or a girl, and taking a second wife isn't going to change that. Um, we had an infertility patient. Her name is Gulshan. She's probably in her mid to early to mid 30s. She came for treatment. She was in tears her first visit because her husband was threatening to take a second wife. We treat many infertility patients often. They are, we, their scheduled visits are two to three months ahead of time because it's such a felt need in, uh, their lives and the Muslims' life that they want, uh, they're willing to wait for two or three months to, to be seen. We require the husband to come along with his wife so we can get a semen analysis. Often,
All right. Can you hear me? No. It's on. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, which mic is it that gives the... All right, I'll try to speak a little louder, I guess. Okay, all right, great. So anyway, we require the man to come so we can get a semen analysis. Um, in the community, other doctors will just treat the wife. Well, it's a waste of time, as you all know. And they often they'll just give her the antibiotics to treat for uh, STDs. So we require that the husband comes. And oftentimes the husband won't come. So she can't get in to be treated uh, for infertility. Um, taking a history. Is there another wife? And does that other wife have children? Um, uh, Gulshan was the only wife. She, uh, he did not have any other wives. He was threatening to take another one. Um, we need to assess how old they are. Many of the illiterate women do not uh, know when they were born. And the way we try and estimate how old these women are is we ask them, when was your first, how long have you been married? And how many years before you were married or how many times before you were married did um, you have a menses? And then we can sort of estimate how long they are, how old they are, depending on if their menses came at the usual age, you know, 11 or 12 years of old age. Some of them know how old they were or how, what class, what grade of school they were in. But usually we have to estimate what the age is. Um, then we need to ask, have you ever been pregnant? Some of them will come for infertility, um, and they, you don't ask to how many children do you have, but how many times have you been pregnant? Because they often, uh, they've, been, they've had uh, miscarriages, and they don't consider a miscarriage uh, a child. It, uh, the, the baby is not considered to be alive until she start, the baby starts to move. Often another problem in uh, Pakistan is uh, marriage between relatives. And so they may have habitual, um, uh, habitual um, abortions because of that, uh, ge the genetic problems that occur when they intermarry. Another question we ask is, uh, do you or your husband drink alcohol? And you might think that that uh, is, should, you shouldn't be able to ask that, need to ask that question because Muslims are not supposed to drink alcohol. However, there are those who do drink alcohol. Uh, I have never had a uh, woman tell me that she drinks alcohol, but there are some who do drink alcohol. And, and though Pakistan is a Muslim country, you can get it on the black market. Um, drugs is an issue too in, in that country and many um, men and some women in third world countries uh, smoke. Uh, the medical histories uh, always ask about TB. Often many of uh, the families will, uh, women, they just deny that they, they have TB or anyone else in the family has had, had it because it's a, a source of shame and, but TB is uh, almost endemic in that country. So that's a question we ask. And diabetes, 
do you or your husband have diabetes? I often ask, what about your parents? Are they diabetic? And um, diabetes, uh, diabetes is a problem in Pakistan. You might not think that it would be, being it that it's a third world country, but there is a lot of obesity and a heart, di heart disease there. Um, taking a sexual history is a very sensitive issue in a culture where marriage is arranged and premarital sex is uh, not acceptable at all um, or extra, uh, extramarital sexual relationships are bring, they bring shame and dishonor and though it happens quite often especially among the male population it is not um, it doesn't occur as often among females, but it can. Um, when we had a male doctor, a Pakistani doctor, he would work. He would uh, take histories from the men. He would examine them, and one of his questions was, "Have you had sex with men?" And that does occur among Muslims. Um, homosexuality is forbidden in Islam, but the act of homosexuality does occur. Um, it's a very touchy situation about talking to women, if, asking them if they've had premarital sex or um, uh, sex outside of marriage. Um, it's, it, it's better not to do that in front of someone else. You, you really need to have privacy. And even um, our routine in... Uh, for our infertility patients is to treat them automatically, even after the with the physical exam, if they, even if they don't have tenderness, we treat them for STDs because it is so common. Um, often they'll uh, they'll ask, well, and and you have to enforce the fact that the husband has to take it. If he doesn't take it, you're not going to have. It's not going to help. Um, and they, some of them will ask, um, well, how did I get this? And it's a very difficult question to answer because if they think, it's one thing to, for them to think, for you to point the finger at them, but if they start know that they're not the one at fault and they start raising questions, then the, the husband may turn the finger back on her because he doesn't want any shame put on him. And uh, if they think that their wife has been unfaithful, she could lose her life. Um, so it's a very sensitive uh, question. So we do treat for STDs and uh, pelvic inflammatory disease routinely, even though the exam may not tell you that. And we don't have the ability in our situation to test for gonorrhea or chlamydia. <coughs> Gulshan was in her early to mid-30s. She was an obese woman. She actually had diabetes, which was probably the reason for infertility. Her uh, husband's semen analysis was normal. I treated her for uh, both of them for possible STDs and, and, and put her on some glucophage and enforced the fact that she needed, her husband also needed to take the meds. Um, I encouraged her to lose weight and to exercise. In our situation, these women do ha don't have the opportunity to get out and walk. They, uh, most of their world largely consists of their home. If they're teachers, they can get out to school. But walking 
on the streets. You go from one place to the next and usually with someone else. So um, encourage them to walk in whatever courtyard they have or whatever room they have, they walk back and forth. And I always have to emphasize with them that this walking doesn't include housework. It's in addition to housework. Many of them think, well, I do my housework. That's, that's, it's more than that. Um, Gulshan came back. Um, uh, we had them come back after a month. She came back before her follow-up visit, and she said, give me my money back, take these meds. My husband has taken another wife. And there was no amount of consoling that I could, I couldn't help her explain to her that she still needed these medicines uh, for her diabetes. Uh, I spent some time with her. Even the first visit I spent time with her, and the second visit I spent more time with her, talking to her about how much Jesus loves her, whether or not she has any children, that God loved her, and what Jesus has done for her. Had the opportunity to pray, and uh, she left, um, still upset. She said she's leaving her husband and going back to her own family. About a year later, a year ago this month, she came back with her um, husband's second wife who was pregnant. So she was back with her husband, and the second wife was there. And uh, she saw me in the hospital, and she said, I'd like to, I want to talk. She told the nurses that uh, she wanted to talk to me. So the nurses came and got me, and, and she said, I want you to pray for me. And I thought, oh, no, what does she want me to pray, that she'll have a child? It's not going to happen until her diabetes is under control. But I said, well, what do you want me to pray for? And she said, I, I want you to pray that I would have peace. So I had the opportunity to pray with her in the name of Jesus that God would give her peace and that to show that God would show her that how much he loves her. Um, and uh, I asked her that day if she wanted to see the Jesus film, and she started to see it, um, but uh, she didn't complete it. They had to go. But uh, I always take the opportunity to pray with the patients and tell them that whether um, you having a child or not, uh, God is, can do impossible miracles, and he can uh, give you a child if you want there was another patient, her name is Ma Bibi, and she was married for 17 years. And she came for infertility treatment. She went through all the routine treatment that uh, we give, the treating for the STDs. And her husband actually had uncontrolled diabetes that got controlled, but she still wasn't pregnant, uh, didn't get pregnant. And we finally had to tell her there's nothing else we can do for you but pray for you in the name of Jesus. And um, she was prayed for in the name of Jesus. Three months later, she came back. She was pregnant with twin girls. She delivered those twin girls. They're healthy. And a couple years later, she, um, she came back for more infertility treatment because she had girls. What she needed was a boy. And um, went through the same routine, still didn't get pregnant. And uh, Dr. Priscilla said, I mean, there's nothing more that we can do for you. We prayed again for her in the name of Jesus. And nine months later, she delivered a baby boy. So prayer um, is very important. In fact, um, uh, when you pray in, uh, for Muslims, um, they pray with their, with their hands, uh, palms open, and they don't pray like this. Their, their head is up, their 
in an act of receiving from God what they're asking for, what they're praying for. So when I pray in, uh, in front of a Muslim patient, I pray with my hands like this and my face, my face out, but they pray with their eyes open and I can't concentrate, so I close my eyes. Um, Alternatives, if they're unable to get pregnant, there is in vitro fertilization available in Pakistan. However, it must be the husband's sperm. Um, they uh, do not, it's not acceptable in Islam to uh, be in, inseminated with someone else's sperm other than your husband. Some of the women will um, do foster care. Somebody else in their family has, they have a lot of children. Sometimes that family will give them, usually it's another girl. They'll give them a child, but it's a girl to take care of and raise. Um, and they, um, there are organizations in the country who their babies have been abandoned where they can adopt those children. Uh, prenatal uh, pregnancy. Prenatal care um, is a very important institution, uh, part of our institution. Um, uh, but it's not always seen important by the women. And in fact, in our institution, we have had to um, basically force the women to get prenatal care because we have so few doctors, and, um, and we actually only have one right now. And we can't handle the emergencies that we used to handle in the past. So helping, forcing them, if, you, if you're going to deliver in our hospital, you have to have prenatal care, meaning they need to come by the 32nd week. And... Um, have at least three visits. Uh, the country, tetanus toxoid, tetanus was a very big problem um, um, in, in Pakistan a number of years ago. So the government started a program where they give tetanus toxoid to the women, so that helps to immunize the child. So when they're, if they deliver in the village and they're cut by an um, uh, unsterile instrument, then the chances of them getting uh, tetanus are decreased. We don't see tetanus toxoid like we used to see, uh, tetanus in the babies like we used to see. Getting an obstetrical history for some of these women who have had multiple uh, pregnancies is a skill. As I said before, um, many don't believe that the baby's alive till they feel it move, so they're not going to count that child as one of the pregnancies. They may not count the girls. How many children do you have? Uh, five, but they're all they're boys. They may have three other daughters. Um, so sometimes I will have, you know, if it's a really complicated, they've had ten kids and they can't tell me how many uh, boys and girls. I'll, well, what's your first pregnancy? What is the name of that child? And go step by step um, with that. I, when examining women, Muslim women prefer to keep uh, their clothes on. They, uh, they don't like to change into a patient gown, so we examine them with their clothes on, lift up um, the part of the, uh, the clothes covering the part of body that we need to see. And one of the things you might discover is an amulet wrapped, um, tied around their, her waist with a little lock on it, and that is to keep the baby from falling out. A lot of them I said, will ask, well, what is this for? And they kind of smile. And, well, my mother told me to wear it. Well, my grandmother told me to put it on. And the Muslims believe in the spirit world. There are jinn, and which they call the evil spirits. 
and they will uh, wear these to keep uh, it out of fear. They're uh, afraid of the evil spirit who will cause the baby to fall out. Uh, complications that we see in our area is, is number one complication is anemia. Many of them are anemic, malaria and parasites. Um, specifically hookworm contribute to that anemia. Um, if we put them on vitamins and iron pills and they don't have any, they're not um, improving, uh, it's good to ask, are you taking your pills? And if not, why? Many of them won't take their pills because they, they think they're going to gain weight if they um, take their vitamins. Need to help, help need to help to educate them about that. Um, is what's in their diet. Muslims will eat meat. It's supposed to be um, slaughtered in the Islamic, uh, according to Islamic ritual. Um, they, Pakistanis will eat liver. Uh, Muslims don't eat blood, um, but they'll eat meat. Um, but many of the patients, maybe they can't afford it. So there are lentils that have plenty of protein in it. Uh, eggs, some women won't eat eggs because they feel it caused jaundice in the baby. And um, it's helpful to, you know, you need to educate them that there's protein in the egg. It, it won't hurt the baby. Um, obesity is a problem. Diabetes is a problem. Uh, hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia. With the antenatal care that you give, you, you can um, prevent a lot of preeclampsia because you catch that before it uh, gets to that point. And um, so the fistula, uh, the vesicle vaginal fistulas, that used to be a big problem a number of years ago, back in the 80s, 70s, before that, because the midwives uh, would use a lot of, uh, they would give IM Pitocin, and you'd have an obstructed labor. And when the baby comes, he's left uh, a hole in the uh, bladder, that um, drains urine out through the vagina causes it's a it's a huge um, cause of shame in that culture to to be smelling like anywhere it would be to be smelling like urine all the time. Um, then, but that's we don't see that quite so much. But now, what our, our problem that we have is that there are a lot of women who end up with unnecessary cesarean sections. I think there's two reasons in my personal view. Number one, I don't think many of the Pakistani uh, doctors don't know how to manage labor. And the second one is you get more um, you get more money if you do a C-section. And the problem with doing it's one thing to do the C-section, but they don't understand what a lower segment scar is, and they put it up too high, which when you when you have your next C-section, uh, pregnant the second time, then that causes greater stress, there's greater stress on that scar, and uh, it, there's more opportunity for it to uh, rupture. And we have gone in, and we've seen there's holes in the, uh, it's been paper thin, about to rupture, or it's already ruptured, and she's not even been in labor. Or you have uh, a hole there with the amniotic fluid, a, a sac, um, poking out. So our, we had a patient die uh, uh, in the 90s 
and she was a previous C-section. She, uh, of course, they, they want to try and deliver normally. She wanted to deliver normally um, until she got to where she was fully in pushing, and then she wanted to have a C-section. But it was determined that she could try. She got to fully, and she was uh, pushing, and uh, she ruptured her uterus. And uh, the baby died. She survived the operation, and but... Um, Two or three days later, she died of a pulmonary embolus, and there was nothing you know you, know, you, know, you can do for that. And um, so, since that time, we've made uh, it a uh, a rule that if you deliver outside of our hospital, if you had a C-section in any other institution that we don't know, it could be another mission hospital. That's good. Well, anywhere where we cannot trust that the C-section scars in the right place, then you have to have an automatic elective C-section. Um, it, saves, it saves lives. Um, so um, that's one of the reasons they like to come to our hospital is because they know we won't do C-sections unnecessarily. Um, another problem is oh, fasting in, pre in, in pregnancy. Uh, Muslims, uh, to be acceptable to God, will f to, to Allah, will fast uh, during the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. They fast from sunrise to sunset. It means going without all food and all water, no chewing gum, no smoking, no sexual intercourse during the daylight hours. It's one thing to go without food. It's another thing to go without water um, during those hours. And many, some of the most uh, pregnant women want to fast. Uh, Islam says that pregnant women, nursing mothers, um, the sick or travelers, the elderly, those who are unable to fast don't have to fast. However, you have to make it up at another time. So if your family is fasting, you want to fast with them. And so some of the pregnant women will do the fast. Uh, um, others just need the your permission as a health care provider to say you don't, you shouldn't fast, um, and then they won't. Um, another thing you can do is to, to negotiate. Um, if they fast on Friday, they get more points. So, well, negotiate with them. How about just doing the fast on Friday instead of the entire month? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Prescriber's letter, uh, do any of you know, have you heard of prescriber's letter? I'm sure that a service that gives uh, information, unbiased information about drug therapy. They have um, guidelines on how to help a Muslim patient keep the fast even if they're a diabetic. Um, and you can get that by going onto their website and giving them money. <laughs> you have to prescribe. I'd share it with you, but that would be against the, the agreement I have with them. Um, osteomalacia is a problem um, because they don't drink enough milk. Women who live in the, in the city don't get a lot of sun. It's hot in Pakistan. You don't want to be out in the sun a lot. You don't want the, your skin to be any darker than, pos than necessary. And um, so uh, we give them uh, calcium and teach them don't take your calcium with your iron. 
Uh, take it with some food or water. Um, uh, ultrasounds. We do have an ultrasound machine, and we do ultrasounds if necessary. Many of them, while they're getting the ultrasound, they want to know, is the baby a boy or a girl? And uh, we don't have time to figure that out, and it's uh, better not to tell them anyway because you don't know what, if it's a girl, what's gonna ha what are they going to do? Um, it, it's not like you hear from India where um, many... Uh, They'll get an ultrasound, and if it's a girl, they'll abort the baby. That doesn't happen. Um, well, I'm, I can't say it doesn't happen. It certainly doesn't happen in our institution, and it's not something that I hear about a lot. There was an inc incident that I heard secondhand in, our, in uh, Pakistan in another city. The family had, the woman had an ultrasound done. They were told that it was a boy. But in actuality, it was a girl when it was born. And the family was so upset that they trashed the, the office where they got the ultrasound machine, uh, ultrasound done. So it's one, another reason not to tell them um, what the sex of the baby is. Labor and delivery, it's strictly a feminine experience. Um, men uh, are, are not, a, it's not that they're not around, they're not in the labor room. They may be out at the gate waiting for the result. They may be in the private room. And now they're within uh, a phone call away. So it's only women are allowed in the room uh, for the labor, uh, during labor. During labor, they might recite the Quran. And some of them will, uh, usually it's the female relative with them who recites the Quran. Not, uh, not the patient herself, especially when she's getting into active labor. They also would uh, use their prayer beads and uh, recite the 99 names of Allah. Um, they tend to want to lie in bed uh, during labor, and uh, we have to teach them you need to get up and walk around. Um, they want the, the baby to be delivered by the hands of a female doctor or a midwife. Um, but... Um, it's okay for if you need a C-section for a male doctor to do the operation. I do not understand why, um, but vaginal deliveries have to be uh, done by a um, uh, female doctor or a midwife. We did have a situation one time where we had an inexperienced obstetrician. There was a, an experienced, older um, obstetrician available, uh, a Westerner, and uh, we told the patient, we said, you know, she needs help from this other doctor. Is it okay if we have him come in and help her? And she said, it's okay, but just don't tell my family. Her sister was with her in the delivery room, but um, uh, it's okay, but just don't tell my family. So some of them, you have to ask permission first, um, but some will allow it. At the birth of the baby, they want to uh, whisper the Islamic creed. It's called the Shahada into the ear of the newborn. It, the Shahada is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. It's um, recited at birth. It's recited when you become a Muslim. It's recited every day when you say your prayers. And it's also recited um, at death. Um, the naming ceremony for the babies are, is on the sixth day. And... Uh, 
I believe that it's, it's usually because many babies in the past died before they reached um, day six. So they don't name the child until uh, day six, and then on day six or seven, they'll shave their heads to uh, purify them from the unclean process, contact with the blood of the mother. They'll uh, shave the heads of the babies, um, and uh, they... Um, in our area, I work among an unreached people group. They're called the Cindy's. They like flat heads. Um, so to flatten the head of the skull, then they will lay the baby always on his back. This baby is um, hyperextended quite a bit. They're usually not that, that way. They'll put the baby between um, uh, this little piece here so they can't roll their head. And these... Uh, uh, pieces of steel, sometimes it's wood, they'll drape uh, a piece of cloth over the top of that to protect the child from mosquitoes or flies. So they like flat, flat heads in their kids, they all, which this is okay to keep the baby flat. That's not going to hurt the baby. It's uh, protected, um, for SID, protected for SIDS. But they also like long noses. And to get the baby's nose long, you have to pinch it. And if you pinch it too hard, you can cause bleeding and um, perhaps death. And so uh, we don't see that as much as we used to see it. Um, and usually it's the older women who are in pinching the nose. If you try pinching your nose, it hurts after a while. Um, so we try and stop that from happening if we see it. I like to pinch the nose of the, the woman who's doing it. <laughs> and tell her, let her see what it feels like. Um, they also like to tightly wrap up their babies, like in a cocoon, um, for a couple months. And some of them will do, it, again, excessive massaging. They'll massage the trunk of the, of the, of the body all, you know, all the way down, and they can put such pressure there that they can ru you can rupture a uterus, uh, not a uterus, but the liver or the spleen. So we stop that also and tell them that's, that's not necessary. I don't know what they do when they go home, but um, circumcision is usually done uh, at four to seven years of age. Also, at the same time, someone else in the family is getting, done, uh, getting um, married. They put two celebrations together. Um, they like to put coal on, not only on the eyes of adults, but on babies. They put it on the eyebrows and on the eyes. And um, it's, um, it's, I think part of this is to keep away the evil eye, this fear of the evil uh, spirits. It's very important in the Islamic world not to um, comment on the beauty of a, of a child or of a baby because that, those comments, positive comments about this child's beauty can bring um, uh, the work of evil spirits in their lives. So um, we try to explain to them it's okay to put the um, uh, coal up here, but not to put it in the baby's eyes because it can be dirty and, uh, and cause an infection. Breastfeeding is encouraged by Islam. Um, Traditional folk Arabic beliefs that result in delayed breastfeeding are the need for the mother to rest. Um, nursing at birth can cause gas pains for the mother, or the colostrum makes the baby dumb. 
in uh, Pakistan, they feel that the the baby, the colostrum is bad for the baby. So we talked to them about sci the research that science has done and that the colostrum is very good for the baby. We're very particular about our uh, primips, um, our primip first-time moms. We want to make sure before they leave the hospital that they're breastfeeding well because a baby who doesn't breastfeed well ends up on the bottle and usually that means diarrhea and uh, other uh, problems. Um, for birth control, the Islamic position isn't real clear-cut. Um, uh, it's a joint decision of the married couple. It can also be a decision of the entire family. Methods uh, include condoms, coitus interruptus, OCPs, family planning injections, tubal ligations. They do use IUDs um, in Pakistan, but we don't use them. Um, in our hospital. Um, the vasectomies are available in this uh, government hospital, um, but most men will not uh, get them done. Um, I was, we had a patient who had a C-section just a month or so ago, and she needed to have her tubes tied because inside there was a lot of adhesions. And, and so I went to the family, and I said, um, she needs uh, her tubes tied. And I watched the whole entire family. We have to get the permission from the husband. He's the one, or the mother-in-law. Those two people can sign for tubal ligations. The woman herself does, is not, does not have the permission to sign culturally. Um, and I watched as the whole entire family talk to this husband. It's okay, it's okay. And they, they made the decision together about whether or not to, to have her tubes tied. Internal exams, vaginal exams, breast exams are okay if you're married. It's not okay if it's an unmarried woman. If it's really medically necessary, um, you might be able to talk her into it as long as a female, it's a female practitioner. She's also with another female member of the family. Um, but uh, sometimes we will just uh, uh, treat them empirically. If she's got symptoms, it sounds like it's an STD. We'll just treat them without doing an exam. Uh, death and dying. Uh, these, uh, it, it's a journey that Muslims believe it takes them from this world to the next. It's not the end, but the beginning of eternal life with Allah in paradise. Only Allah has the right or power to give or take life, so euthanasia is not acceptable, either passive or aggressive euthanasia. At death, as I was saying before, they recite the Islamic creed. If you recite it as you're passing from this world to the next, the chances are greater that you will get to um, get into paradise. Um, uh, we have, uh, since we have prenatal care, we don't have as many stillborns as we used to have, but we do sometimes have babies who die or a stillborn, and the. Um, the tendency for the family is to hide that from the woman, that her baby has died. And I'm not sure, what are they thinking? One day, soon, she's going to understand that she doesn't have a live baby. Um, they will take the baby away. They won't show the child to her. I um, sat with a woman in labor a couple years ago, um, and uh, she had lost a baby before, and she, said, and she was in labor at this time. She said, I never saw my baby 
and she, it was a grieving process for her. She was able, was unable to have closure. Um, I think this woman, this is this very same woman who she delivered a microcephalic child. And <coughs> of course, the, the baby didn't, um, d- didn't live. And the nurses too, they, they did not want to show the, the baby to the, ch- to the patient. But I wrapped the baby up so that you, hide as much as the the skull as possible and gave the baby to the mom to hold. And that helps them um, to have closure there. Uh, just a month or so ago, we had a patient who had, a, had to have a C-section. It was her first baby. The baby was in distress. The baby didn't make it. And I came on, I didn't know, well, I, I found that out when I was reading the chart and uh, the baby had died during the night. And I went to the patient and I said, I'm sorry about your baby. And, I, and she hadn't been told. And the family just, um, I, and the baby was gone. She didn't even get to hold her child. So though they, you know, um, they grieve without hope. Um, and it's, uh, they fear death a lot. And, um, Presence of the family member at the bedside brings comfort. Um, if an adult, they uh, prefer to die at home. One of the reasons why it's um, they, if if you know that the family, the person, the patient is going to die, and there's nothing else you can do for them, you tell the family. And usually, if especially if they live a long way away, they want to take the person home at that time because it's easier to transport them. They can transport them in a van with other people in it. We're transporting a dead body with other people in the van is not possible. Um, to take a small child out of the hospital, that, that isn't, a, isn't a problem. Um, they like to be positioned um, in the bed so they're facing Mecca and it's good to allow them to pray and to recite the Quran if they want. Um, Autopsies are permitted in Islam. Um, uh, the grief process. This is one of the, the things that I learned. Uh, I really appreciated learning from the Pakistani culture how they grieve. When someone dies, then the family opens up the home, and people just come from all over the place, and they sit there. You don't have to say anything. You just sit with the family, and if you want to, you can ask them. What's go- how did it happen? How did this person die? And, um, and they are the ones who talk. And as they talk and they cry, it's a, um, it's a great way for them to deal with their grief, to get it all out. And, um, and many of them will they'll cry every time someone new comes to the house. And it's hard when, uh, how do you comfort uh, a a family of a Muslim who has died and has not received Christ. You can pray for them that God would comfort them, um, but you can't give them any hope that their loved one is in, in heaven. But spending that time with them at this time of need speaks volumes. Um, how to establish trust. Um, you can uh, begin by, um, well, first of all, Muslim women are more comfortable with a female healthcare professional, uh, healthcare provider. The same Muslim men are more comfortable with a provider of the same sex. Um, 
that helps a lot. It goes a long way um, in uh, uh, working with uh, Muslim clients. Um, greet them with the Islamic greeting. They're, uh, assalamu alaikum. That just means peace be unto you. And they will say back to you, Walaikum assalam. Um, start with small talk. How's your family? Men should not ask about the, the man's wife. In specifically, how, you don't ask how is your wife, you ask how is your family, how are your children. It would be an insult to ask another man about his wife. Um, dress modestly and professionally. Um, modest dress is very, very important. In uh, my country, I wear the, the national dress. Uh, another part of dressing modestly is for women is to put your hair, put your hair back. Because loose flowing hair is not something that is seen in public. Uh, when there's a party or something, their hair is all let loose, and it's usually long. Um, but dressing modestly and professionally is very important. And the same um, uh, vein is to use patient education handouts where the models are uh, modestly dressed. Um, you might want to use a lab coat, especially for nurses, uh, nurse practitioners. In my area of the world, nurses are not highly looked, up, uh, looked upon. And uh, if you want, wearing the lab coat gives you a little bit more, um, might give you a little bit more respect. They might listen a little bit, um, a little bit more to what you have to say. Uh, feel the patient's pulse. The traditional healers in um, Pakistan, traditional uh, uh, healers, yeah, they will feel the patient's pulse and they'll decide by the feel of the pulse what's wrong with them and what medications to give. Shaking hands. Men can shake hands with men, women with women. You always use the right hand, not the left hand. The left hand is considered dirty. Um, work with them in making adjustments to your plan of care during Ramadan. Use, if you have to use a gown, use a cloth one, not those paper ones that feel so uncomfortable. Um, provide for privacy when taking a uh, sexual history. Involve the family in decision-making process and in times of um, teaching. Allow family members at the bedside. And repeatedly ask them, do you have any questions? The, usually the first time when I'm working with someone, um, they don't understand why would... Uh, the doctor be asking me if I have any questions. That's not, it's not cultural. Um, you know, the doctor says this and you do it. You may not understand what they're doing. So you have to ask questions. Next time, they're, they're more comfortable with you and they, they'll be more apt to ask, uh, ask you questions. There's a couple of models, cultural assessment tools that you can use to help um, uh, understand the culture where your client is coming from. And um, just to remember, in um, um, Pakistan we have a, a saying that says, five fingers, are, uh, five fingers are not equal. It means that you may be from the same culture, you may be a Muslim, but um, the variations between people, families, are great. So don't treat them all the same. I have gone a long time. Sorry. Questions? Um, for healthcare providers who might be going to a Muslim country to provide care, are there any specific resources you would recommend that we 
Oh, thank you. Um, there are not uh, culturally. Yes, there's there's one, especially for women. But you can um, you can uh, find um, find a lot out a lot about the culture. There's Woman to Woman by Joy Lowen L O E W. I think it's E N or O N. That's one. And there's another one called Mothers, Miniskirts, and Muslims, I think. And that's by Christine Molani, M-O, let me see, I've got her. uh, Just a second. I don't know what's happened here. (laughs) Oh, dear. can't get my computer to her name is Christine if you if you just google min, uh, mothers mini skirts and Muslims it'll come up that's another uh, good cultural one yes in our country yes Western medicine is uh, is uh, uh, very uh, appreciated. Many of the women will come to us because they they know we're going to tell them the truth. They and uh, they are very appreciative of uh, Western medicine. Uh, a lot of their their own doctors, you know, they'll just well, some of them won't even touch the patient, and you know they'll say one thing. You know, the patient comes in with a complaint. And they don't get any um, exploratory questions. When did this start? You know, and they don't even touch them, and they just write out some medicines. And they might write out five different things to cover five different possibilities, to cover all the differentials. Yes, um, and they, they they trust. I I say they trust us, but they're sometimes they don't. Yes. Not in my in our area. We just throw it away. They they don't want it. It's it's blood. <laughs> yes. You were saying people going to a Muslim country. Uh, just because you go to a non-Muslim country, you've got to be aware. In the village where we work, there is a large Muslim population, and you've got to be conscious of that in when you're dealing with. Your patients or your friends. Right. Well, in our we have Hindus that we take care of, and on our cards it says gives the religion and um, the language that they speak. So um, we we do have Hindus and Christians that we take care of as well. Yes. Really? No. Um, they we we actually put them up in stirrups still. Um, we do have labor and delivery beds new that we can break down. Well, they they don't labor in that. We don't our physical um, situation is such that we can't do that. But we transfer them to another bed and, that breaks down. And maybe in the future we'll get to the place where 
we can um, they can deliver without the stirrups. Part of that is con- their ability to control themselves and to be in control at the delivery process. But no, they are covered with the drapes. Um, there's no problem with that. Can you share a little bit about how you've managed to keep the hospital running when you've had so few providers? Uh, like where you said, you only have the one doctor currently. And- what happens when we don't have doctors? Well, what happens when we don't have doctors um, is, uh, well, that happened a couple years ago when our uh, doctor, Dr. Priscilla Carpenter, went home um, on for a couple months, actually a home assignment. I, as a nurse practitioner, I was able to keep the outpatient department open, but we were unable to do deliveries. We had to shut down that part of the ministry. Um, and so far, um, and we're still having doctor problems. Uh, we need doctors, <laughs> all of you there, nurse practitioners, midwives. <laughs> There's some information over there about the institution, and I'm glad to ask more questions. Um, God has provided. He continues to provide. Um, but uh, it's, it's not easy for her to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We've tried to get Pakistani doctors. We've had... Um, we've had Pakistani doctors in the past. One was a male doctor. He did C-sections. And um, they did accept him as long as there's another female doctor around. Um, if he's the only doctor there permanently, then our clientele goes down. Um. Yeah.